Come on down and wait right here. I'll offer a prayer. The Father, we come to this time in the service where we give our offerings and we, we just want to be reminding ourselves that it's part of our worship. So thank you that you have given everything that we have. You've given it to us. It's ours on loan and, and from you. So remind us of that, that, that it's all you. The breath that we breathe is all you. So thank you for that. I'm thankful for every person that gives. Now, some will give in the offering, but multiple people give online. They use their phones. They set up their checking account, multiple ways to do it. And we're thankful for every single one of them. We don't operate on an endowment here, some big fund. Money comes in, goes out to ministry. So thanks for every participant. And I pray that you'll, uh, they'll have a sense of blessing as we share together. In Jesus' name, amen. And as we share in our offering, if you're here, you're visiting, uh, feeling new, you're not a regular member here, you don't typically attend, man, don't be thinking about an offering. It's something we do as part of our worship, but we want you to feel absolutely free as you're with us this morning. Now, quick question as we start. Um, how many of you were actually here last week, last week's sermon? Just real quick. Holy smokes, and you came back again. Thank you so much. You know, wasn't sure what we'd find. For some of you who weren't here, uh, you'll see a little bit more what we're talking about um, this morning as we walk through this, and, and I'll give you some quick background to it. But speaking of last week, something you wouldn't have known about. So last week, in, in, in actually in this service, uh, we had uh, about 15 middle school students here. They're here from a particular group in town, and they, this has happened before, so not the first time, but they do a religious studies class, and they go visit different groups, different churches, all different faith groups. And we are there, we were the study on, on the Christian faith. And so they were here to observe a service. And when they come, uh, they usually tell us ahead of time so we know. And then they ask if they can spend some time with me afterward for some questions and answers. So we had 15 middle schools here in their, in their uh, chaperones. And then immediately after the service, we met in the back room for me to spend a few more minutes with them. I'll tell you right now, I would rather face a, a team of a thousand atheists than a group of middle schoolers having free reign at any question. But this group, fantastic group, we welcome them, glad to have them, and trust they'll come back. But, you know, there I am, like, okay, what do you got? And so all sorts of questions. It took a little while. So you got the regular questions about music and instruments and whatever. But uh, these were some thought-provoking questions, and they're thinking through some things. One young gentleman said, I have a question for you. So where do you land when the church and science are in conflict with one another? He's way too young for questions like that. <laughs> and so, you know, my first response was, well, tell me what you mean. Huge mistake on my part. He says, so um, science has pretty much proven that the world is a billion, at least a billion years old. And the Bible contends it's only 6,000 years old. So something like that, where do you stand when clearly, uh, clearly uh, the Bible and science is at odds with one another? Well, uh, time's up. I wish we could. <clears throat> I just wish we had more time that we could chat, but you really got to get out of here. So I, you know, I jump in. I jump in. I man, man, that's a great question. And so, and, and again, the receptive. I said, so here's the deal. I said, the truth of it is the Bible and science are not at odds. In fact, if you go look, the Bible and science have never been at odds. Uh, in fact, go a step further, you can go and do all the research, you can do, I mean, do, do intensive research and, research and you'll find the oddity about the Bible is it's never been found, been found to be in conflict, not historical conflict, not scientific, not scientific conflict. I said, but that doesn't answer your question on this apparent conflict. I said, let me change the wording. 
The better statement to, to think about is there are times when Christian, Christians or a Christian and a scientist are in conflict, not science and the Bible. I said, even your, your example, I said, so there's some debate whether the world really is a billion years old or not. And there's some debate there. I said, but so a scientist may claim that. But the other side of that is you can look in the Bible all you want. You will find anywhere in the Bible where it says the Bible, the Bible claims it to be 6,000, the world claims it to be 6,000 years old. I said, the Bible doesn't claim that. I said, that would be a Christian claiming that. Uh, I heard it said years ago. I wish I could remember. I'll have to go re- do the research because I have it written down. Uh, but uh, years ago, um, someone in the church world made this statement. Whenever you find science, whenever the science and the church tends to be in conflict, then both of the interpreters of the information should go redo some research because they'll find somewhere along the way their interpretation is wrong. Either, either the Christian's interpretation or the scientist's interpretation because there isn't a conflict that where one's right or wrong, they walk in harmony. I gave the answer and he went, okay, good, thanks. Whew. Yeah, <laughs> got, got through that. I will tell you this, one question came up and please know these were great questions and I wasn't trying to duck it. I'm being very sincere that there's lots of room in the science and biblical world in dialogue and you don't have to believe one thing or the other that they, they live in harmony together. But one of the adults said this, and it was a great question, uh, and this is going to lead me into something I want to give you a challenge. Um, one of the adults said this, so my impression, if you watch, if you watch evangelical uh, preachers on TV, if you watch the typical church on TV, if you attend a typical church, clearly the theme in all of those sermons are hell. That the theme over and over again is hell. To either frighten people into hell, to scare them into he- out, out of hell, um, to change the way they live because of hell. If you don't do this, you're going to feel guilty. She said, so I have to admit coming in here today, I am surprised. Uh, your whole, the whole day, the whole, the whole sermon, the whole deal, and no hell. How do you explain that? I said, well, you should have been here last week. Man, last week. <laughs> I, last week, it was turn or burn. Let me tell you, I just laid it right out there. I said, well, what most people forget about the fact is that we te- we're supposed to be preaching and telling the gospel. And the gospel means good news. I said, so we don't shy away from heaven or hell if it's in the text that we're looking at and in the, in the flow of scripture. I said, but the truth of it is we're looking at good, word, the good news. That's the gospel. And if people will respond to the call of Jesus, uh, they don't have to worry about the heaven or hell piece. Uh, they got nothing but heaven before them. I said, so we don't tend to use that. And I use the example as well. I said, we all know here that we operate out of fear and fear doesn't work. I told them something I shared with you when, when 9-11 happened years ago. These kids wouldn't remember, but the adults that were there did. I said, when COVID hit and everyone had to be home, I said, church attendance surged on internet everywhere. Why? Fear. And then after the fear goes, everything goes down. So I can give you a message on hell and scare you. And after that, you're not, you're not afraid anymore. And it wears off. I said, but good news, man, that lasts forever. And now that reminded me of something I wanted to tell you. I... I uh, Mark this when I read it last week and actually sent it myself so I wouldn't forget it. There are surveys happening all the time. This was, this was huge, a huge survey. One of the latest surveys found that evangelical churches and evangelical Christians, that would be us, Bible-believing, evangelical Christian and evangelical churches are the most unfavorable, unfavorable religious group now in our country. Evangelical Christians and churches are viewed by the world as the least favorable religious group than any other group. Man, we got to change that. 
And admittedly, we have created a lot of that. We've created it because we have mixed up the Bible with politics. We have mixed up the Bible with positions on things. And so now it's become the evangelical, evangelicals are seen as the most unfavorable. The Jews are first. Islam, Mormon, they're, I was going to say they're just above us. Actually, they're quite way above evangelical Christians. So, you know, so my, in my world today, when I'm out talking to people and they say, oh, are you an evangelical Christian? I go, absolutely not. <laughs> no, no, I know some, but uh, not me. You know, I know some. Uh, my approach for years before this poll ever came out has been this. Well, I'll tell you what I am. I'm a guy that years ago read everything I could find in every world religion, including the Bible. And when I got done, the Bible just made sense. So I've decided to follow the Bible and to follow God because I can get my head around a creator and the answers of why we're here, where we're going, where it all ends. That's where I land. And I have to be honest, you can't argue with that because it's my story. Folks we got to do better in our story. It's the story of Jesus Christ changing our lives. And so that's the story we stick with. Now, you're back, and we're talking, if you weren't here last week, and as a reminder, we're talking about, I'm doing a couple weeks and helping us learn how to be generous. Teaching on how to be generous. Not teaching you how to give, because you know how to give. In fact, we all know how to give, and, and we do that quite well, which is what makes it kind of hard to tell people that they may not be generous because we're actually good givers. And because we're good givers, we don't often see ourselves as not being generous. We think that we are. And remember, I'm not trying to teach you how to do something, how to be something that's more difficult. Now, the fact that everybody gives and gives well um, is complicates it. But here's the other complicating piece. When we do give to people, when we take something which is ours and we give it away to someone else, we feel good about that. You're supposed to feel good. So it's not a bad thing. So when you do that, in almost every case when we give, there's a benevolent feel there's a helping someone out in need. And when you do that, you just feel good about it. Not running wrong with that, but that good feeling probably helps mask the reality that even though we're not generous, we feel generous. And so we're going to help understand that a little bit better today. Now, hear this. The reason that we're not generous is not because we're not good people. Please hear that. If I say we're not generous, I'm not saying you're bad. It's, it, we're not generous, not because we're not good people. Chances are good that we're not generous because we haven't been taught to be generous and we haven't thought about what it means to be generous because we live in a world that doesn't paint a picture of generosity or if it does, it paints the wrong picture. So we're going to talk about that today. Now remember as well, generosity is more than random acts of giving. A lot of us equate generosity because, you know, we're quick to give to a need. You know, here, here's money and here's money here. And some groups asking for things, we, we ante up. But it's more than that. Now, please know I'm all for random acts of giving. I hope that you have a whole lifetime of random acts of giving. And again, we're good at it. Uh, in this church right here, we came and said, night to shine, it's going to cost us $30,000. We're still accounting all the money still coming in and accounting some of the bills that are still yet to be paid. But guess how much money came in? 30,000 plus. That's, that's incredible. Uh, long about November time, we say to the church, listen, Christmas is coming. We want to give gift cards out to local schools. We want to give them uh, to families that don't have, don't have enough. We want to give them a gift card. They can go to Walmart someplace and buy some gifts and some toys, whatever. And we say to you, hey, we like to have at least 10,000. We get 11, 12, 15,000 without any real prompting. No one putting a gun to your head. So we're good givers. But I want you to also know that I care enough about you and I love you enough to tell you that their generosity is better. Random acts, good. 
generosity better. See, when you're generous, you will have more, save more, and consume less. Make sure you get that. Because that goes against our thought. Our thought, if I'm generous, it's all going out. I'm giving it all away. When you are generous, you'll actually save more, have more, consume less. The idea of generous is to have an intentional plan to set your money free. It's actually kind of fundamental here, and I should qualify that this sermon, this series is part of my COVID result, uh, COVID of listening to sermons and people and stuff. I can, you know, I got names and names of people I've been, I was reading during COVID and listening to sermons and series and blogs on all this stuff. But you have to get in your mind that the idea of generous is to, is to set your money free. It's an intentional plan because setting your money free sets you free. And again, we're going to come back to that theme. Now that promise of having more, saving more is true for everyone except for one small exceptional group. And that's those people who hoard money. If you're a money hoarder, now here's the good news for you. If you are, we don't know who you are. So I can say these next words and I don't have to worry about it because I don't know if you're a money hoarder or not. No one knows but you. But if you're a money hoarder, you already know this to be true. And that is you can, you can save everything you've ever made and hoard it and you still have anxiety and worry over it. You can have every dollar you've ever made stored away, stashed away. And you'll still have anxiety over it. Why? Because hoarding does nothing for peace. Having more does not lead to peace. But pad your life around generosity. Pad in your life around the idea of being generous and living a generous life and watch your anxiousness disappear. Now here's the promise that Jesus makes. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, it'd be wise of you to listen to this. If you are not a follower of Jesus, it wouldn't kill you to listen to it either. It goes like this. Jesus flat out says, listen, if you will live a gener- generous life, and here's the verse we looked at last week, he says this, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. The key word is that word blessed. Remember, blessed. What Jesus says is this, if you will live a generous life, you're going to be happy. That's the promise from Jesus. Now, we think of happy in a moment. We think when we do a nice thing for our kids, when we do a nice thing for other people, we think that makes me feel happy. That is not the word Jesus used there. Remember? We said this, when you live a generous life, your life will be marked with happiness. Which means it's not just a feeling you get in the moment. It means you have the opportunity to walk through life with your life marked with happiness. You have this joy which is just not containable and it's not marked on the stock market. It's not based upon your cash flow. Jesus says, man, it is more blessed. It is happy as a lifestyle that you'll enjoy when you learn to be generous. Now, the evidence of that is true as we all know it. You look at people who are generous people, they tend just to be happy people. You just don't find grumpy, generous people. It just doesn't work. Now, before we get into a a portion of scripture today that I want to highlight and walk through with you, I need to make a case with you. So I need you to bear with me and I do get it. Now, as I walk through this, I already told you last week, one of my fears is being too short. So I've overcome that this week. So don't worry about it. But, but seriously, I need you to work with me here for a moment because I'm going to make a case and you might possibly say, well, when are you going to get to the to scripture? And trust me, we're going to get to that scripture and it's going to be very revealing for us. But if we're going to win this battle here on money and finances, I really have to take time for you to, to think with me about a couple of things. So just track with me for a little bit. Most Americans, maybe you're not one of them, but 90% or more of Americans feel financial pressure in their life. 
Most Americans feel financial pressure in their life. Um, and it's not, because, it's not because of lack of money. In many cases, again, it's this lack of generosity, which we'll explain. Now, the word that most people associate with money, if, if we could do a quick survey and say, what word do you associate in most in your life with money and finances? The typical word out there is worry. For most people, there's moments when you don't worry. There's moments when you can put it aside. But the most typical word is a sense of anxiousness or worry. Will I have enough? Will I have enough to retire? Will I have enough to live? Will I ever have enough to buy that the engagement ring? Will I ever have enough to buy that house? Will I ever have enough to actually save some and not spend it all? Will I have enough to get ahead? Will I have enough to get married? Will I have enough someday to actually get out of debt? So much of us worry about money, and it's usually qualified, will I ever have enough of for whatever. That is typically how we think about it, and that's actually worry. Now, what's crazy is what we do with our worry. So it goes like this. In response to my worrying about whether I have enough, I spend everything I have. Now, that's crazy. That's exactly what we do. The response to whether we have enough is we just keep spending it. While we worry whether we'll have enough, we get in more debt and spend everything we have and actually spend what we don't have with credit and credit cards. We spend what we don't have while we worry if we'll have enough. That's crazy. I mean, that's just crazy thinking. Will I have enough? Will I have enough? Will I have enough? I know what I'll do. I'll go buy what I can't afford and I will have even less. And so now the pressure is even greater. And most Americans, the survey tells us that for most Americans have little to no financial margin. We have little to no margin for catastrophe, for something going wrong. That's why what happens when the car breaks down, when a major appliance goes, whatever, the answer, our margin is the credit card. We put it on there and if we go into more debt. So the typical American family has very little margin. Let me give you a thought. The fact is that we really don't worry about money. What we really worry about is consumption. You see, what we really worry about is not the money. We really worry about, will I have enough to, to satisfy my consumer appetite? For the most part, will I have enough to go buy the things that I want? Now, we'll rationalize it. I, I do it too, so please, I'm not pointing a finger here. I, I, use, I use the word want. I use the word need. I mean, do I have enough to buy what I need? I got it. But the truth of it is, for much of it, we're worried about whether we'll have enough to buy the things we want. Our consumer appetite. Now, it's very important. At the core of this consumption drive in us, there's a mindset. We have a consumption. We have a consumer drive. I mean, the whole world views us as consumers. You got that, right? I mean, every business out there views you as the consumer, views me as the consumer. Now, if you own a business, please know I'm not taking a shot at you. We want you to prosper. If you own a bake shop, I want you to make really good cinnamon rolls, and I want you to prosper. So I'm not taking shots at people, but we're seen, and we are consumers. A mindset that thinks, and here's the problem. Here's the real issue. This consumption mindset is this. I believe that what comes to me, it's got my name on the check, I'm the one that did the work. I'm the one that signed the, the bill. I'm the one that gets the receipt of it. I get the, the check. I get the cash. If it comes to me, it's mine. And it's mine to consume. That's the mindset that works against generosity. It's mine to consume. It's for me, for me to consume. Now, let me pose a couple of quick questions for you. Very quick questions. Try to be honest, as honest as you can with these. They're loaded questions. I, I, always, I always tell you that if it's a loaded question, I'll tell you right up front which means you can't answer correctly. So I just know I'm setting you up. All right, here we go. 
All right, question number one. How much more money, how much more income do you, would you need in your life for you to stop spending everything that you make? How much more money would you need to come in for you to stop spending everything that you make? 10%, 15%, more? And so if you land on 20%, my statement would be, so if you go, yeah, 20% more would, ha- would help me not spend everything I have coming in. That means if you go to work tomorrow and your boss or your employer says, hey, I'm giving you a 20% bonus. We're going to raise you 20%. That means you'll never spend more again than what you're spending right now? No. You know it's not true. Why? Because over time, as the income increases, so does the spending. That's the way that it goes. Um, over time, your income increases, the spending goes along with it. So really, the right answer, just so you know, is not 10 or 15. The right answer is, how much more do I need? More money than I'll ever get at one time. That's the right answer. It kind of goes like this. And if, you, if you're struggling with it a little bit, I'll give you this one. So how big of a garage do you need to not fill that garage up with everything you have? The answer to that is there isn't a garage big enough for that because we fill the space. That's the norm. Unless, unless you change, radically change your thought process. Second question. How much more money would you need coming in for you to quit using your credit cards and having a constant um, uh, balance on your credit card. How much more money would you need coming in to not use your credit card to not have a balance? 10%, 15%, 20%, nope, nope, and nope. Same answer. The answer is more money than you're ever going to get at one time. Why? Because that's the pattern. That's how it works for us. Let me give you a third question. How much more money do you think you would need in order for you to have some financial margins in your life? To have some breathing space? Well, it's the same answer. It's not 10, it's not 15, not 20. It's more than we're ever going to get at any given time. Why? Because our habits and our patterns don't change with increased money. They're pretty much established, and that's how we do it. Let me give you one last question. How much more money would you need to stop worrying about money? How much more money would you need coming in to say, finally, I don't have to worry about whether I have enough anymore. 10%? 20? This one's probably a little higher. Maybe like 50% more? And of course the answer is no amount. Because there are incredibly wealthy, wealthy people beyond what we can imagine or for ourselves who still worry about money. Years ago, Dinah and I pastored in Detroit, on the edge of Detroit, I should say. We pastored right next to a town, I mean right in the middle of a place called Gross Point. In St. Clair Shores. When you think about Gross Point, that area, big money area. Our church was full of people with big money, millionaire type people. It was basically car industry. You know, the Ford Estate was there. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you go through Michigan, you got Cadillac, Michigan. You mean all the auto industry. And that was the money. And I was performing a wedding for a family. Uh, the, our church was an old school that we had bought, so it wasn't much to, to look at uh, for weddings. And so the wedding was at a big stone Presbyterian church, man. It was gorgeous. If you go there on Sunday in their late service, the 11 o'clock service, the ushers wear black tuxedo coats and they have black bow ties and they wear white gloves when they usher. Um, I mean, I want to go there just for fun. I was, did the service. And then the reception was at the yacht club. And a gorgeous yacht club on Lake St. Clair. And uh, remember last year, I mean last week I told you, Diane and I had two cars. We had a Chevette and an emerald green LTD Ford. So we took that one. We decided to take the Ford to the uh, yacht club. That was our best looking car when we drove up to have the valet park it. Uh, we went in and we spent the evening with people that were multi-millionaires everywhere. 
We, had this, we ate that night well. Shrimp, scallops, caviar, prime rib, lobster. I mean, it was just a wonderful night and talking to people who had far more than we would ever dream of having. And yet, throughout the night, the common theme was worry. If they have enough. Because don't forget, this is right in the time... I won't give you exact time because it just dates everything, but it was at a time when the auto industry was on the brink of collapse. They've been, they've been producing more and more cars and better and better cars, and people weren't buying cars, and the whole thing was going down. Chrysler was getting ready to go down. So these are all people, millionaires in the auto industry. The whole night, the whole dialogue was about worry and anxiousness and all of that. We went out, we valet brought our green LTD, and the guy looked at me, I said, you know, don't, don't judge me. Um, you know, open those big doors and climbed in, we're driving home, and we're talking about the night and just saying, you know, we just don't fit. Now, please know, I can relate, I can be in that setting and I can fit and relate and talk, but I said, I, I, we don't have anything compared to that. And so we kind of had this kind of corporate thought, <laughs> that is, Man, if it, if it does all go south, if everything collapses like they're saying here with the industry, we got no hope. I mean, they got everything and they don't have hope. What do we have? And then it was like a light went on. It was like, <laughs> we don't have anything. What are we worried about? <laughs> so don't think that just because you've got wealth, that's the answer because that's not it. This worrying of money is a... Is a issue for everyone. But here's the key piece. Worrying about money is a spiritual issue, not a money issue. Worrying about money is a spiritual issue. So we worry about our consumption, our future consumption. While we're worrying, we spend more and more and more. That's crazy. And there's a better way to live. Um, More money does not mean more self-control. And yet for most of us, we truly believe if only I could get, if only I could get, if only I could get, the problem is right after the only, there's another only. It just keeps going. Now, at the heart of all of this is this consumption assumption, this Ed Young statement. He said that what happens is we have this assumption of a consumption. We assume that everything that we have is for us to consume. That's our thought process. And Jesus called this way of thinking, actually, he called it greed. He said, if you have the thought process that what comes to you is for you to consume, he said, that's actually greed. Our way of thinking is this, if it's mine and it comes to me, it's for me, and if prompted, I will give some away at different times and give it away very generously, and the difficulty is we look at that and think generous, and Jesus would look at that and say, nah, you're still locked into greed, because we assume that it's ours, and it's ours for, for me. Now, this pattern with greed, and the problem with it is this, you can't see greed in a, in a mirror, Right? See, when I talk about greedy people, who do you think about? A, not you. B, you think about someone who's got a lot of stuff, and you think they're really, really greedy. But we never think about it as being us. See, greedy is the person who has very, very little. And greedy is the person who has a medium amount. And greedy is the person who has a lot, who assumes that because it came to them, it's theirs to consume. So to all of this, Jesus tells a story. Here's the passage. Jesus tells a story. Now, what's interesting about the story, Jesus is out. He's walking and teaching with his disciples, spending time with people. And there's someone in the crowd that shouts out a question to him. Jesus shouts out the question. And admittedly, I'm not happy with Jesus' answer. 
Because we really would hope that he have a better answer than what he did. What he really said is, hey, what are you asking me for? It's like, no, don't do that. But then after that, he gives a story because the person who's asking the question is touching on something that every one of us cares about. And that is, do we have enough? What's mine? What's yours? And share it with me. That's the issue. And so Jesus tells a parable. So he doesn't answer the question, but then he turns to everyone and says, let me tell you a story. Don't forget what a parable is. A parable is a made-up story. It's a story in order to get a truth across. Now, what's very interesting about this, now catch this. So Jesus tells a story about a guy who was not real, who is actually really like us in order to impact some real people who are us. Now, while you try to process what I just said, I'll be halfway through the message by the time you get done. Here we go. Luke chapter 12 is the story. Here's what it says. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Stop right there just real quickly. Uh, Not too long ago, I spent some time with some younger children for like a prolonged day. And all I heard all day long was, they're not sharing, they're not sharing, they're not sharing. And I'm reading this this past week and I'm going, hey, it doesn't change. This sounds just like kids fighting, saying, tell mommy, tell him to share. Daddy, tell him to share. So it's interesting, we're all children, right? Doesn't matter the age, still children. Hey, teacher, tell my brother to divide inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbor between you? Stop right there. That's a disappointing piece right there. Where Jesus goes, hey, what are you asking me for? Now, let's be honest. In this story, every one of us relates to this guy. Every single one of us, because we all have this sense of what's fair is fair, and what's fair is, hey, it was the inheritance, I should get part of it, my brother won't share with me, and if you're the guy asking, you are really disappointed and put out by Jesus. Because any one of us who's a parent knows in this moment what you say to your children is what? Johnny, you have to share with your sister, right? So what we're begging here, especially if you've ever been on the receiving end of some kind of deal where you should get your fair share, you want Jesus to go and they, when, when he says, hey, tell him to share, you're that guy going, here it comes, finally. Jesus, let them have it. And he goes, hey, what are you asking me for? Come on. This is our moment. Then he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Stop right there. When we see that word greed, we assume that he's talking to this brother who won't share. I actually think he's talking to both of them. Because both of them demonstrate the same attitude of greed, believe it or not. The one who has it all and the one who has none are all having the same issue. And now let's finish. He goes, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, abundant harvest. And then he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store all my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. There's our story. Now, let me give you the first truth from the story. And the first truth in the story, you're just not going to like. 
So have you ever, ever heard the saying, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer? And not only have you heard it, you've probably said that, right? I mean, there's been some point in time in your life where you're struggling, you're trying to make ends meet, you're trying to figure things out. And while you're doing that, you're looking at somebody else and it's kind of like, man, I'm trying to get by and they just keep getting more and more. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So truth number one is that's absolutely true. Sorry. Even 2,000 years ago, it was true. 2,000 years ago, Jesus telling a story, and he's telling a story of the same principle. The rich just seem to get richer, poor keep struggling. So there it is. But please know, just because the rich get richer doesn't mean they're any happier. And so this guy in the story, this guy already has barns full. Make sure you get that. He already has barns full of grain. And now he has an abund- a bumper crop. He gets an abundant crop. So, I mean, man, it's just coming in in leaps and bounds. So he thinks just like we think, just like us. And he says, what will I do? Well, I have no place to store my stuff. I'll get a storage unit. That's exactly how we think. I have no place to store my stuff. You know, I need, I need a third garage. I'm going to build a shed. We can just put it in the guest room. You know what? Maybe we need a bigger house. That's exactly how we think. I've got so much stuff, he says, what am I going to do with it? Now, this is very key to understand. This is really the key piece of what I want to focus on and then unpack for you. Do you know what he does? He does what he's always done. That's the problem. He just does what he's always done. You see, the more money you make doesn't mean that you change anything. You will continue to do exactly what you are doing. This is so important. That's why if you're in your 20s and you learn these principles now of being generous, then when you're in your 40s and your 50s and you have a whole lot more money coming in than you do now, you're actually going to be in a great position because you will have saved more, you will have given more, you have, you have accumulated more in the right context and you'll be free. You win. But if you don't get it, it doesn't matter what's your age. You're going to stay in this crazy cycle of believing, if I only had more, then I'd feel better. So you got to get it right. The rich guy in this story did what he's always done. And here's what he's always done. He assumed that what he has was his to consume. That's his mistake. He assumed what he's always assumed. If it comes to me, it's for me. And the fact that I've got more doesn't mean I'm supposed to be given away. It just means I'm richer. It's for me to consume. So what's he going to do? He says, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Now, this is where he and I differ. I wouldn't have torn down the old barns. I would just build the bigger barns. So I like to think I'm a little better steward of my resources than he is. Uh, He builds bigger barns. I'll have more. Now, catch this because this is what we do. He thinks to himself, I'm going to save it. I'm going to save it now. Why? So I can consume it later. Consumption mentality. I'm going to save it so I can consume it later. And then he says to himself, and we say to ourselves, well, now I have plenty of grain. I had it all loaded up and laid up for many years. I can take life easy. I can eat, drink, and I can be merry. I can imagine his feeling, can't you? If you've ever been in a place where you have been without and you have a moment where you get something that gives, relieves the pressure. There's that immediate feeling where you go, made it safe. I can imagine his feeling where he's got so much where he says, I'm done. I'm golden. I want you to think about this and be honest. Now, here we go. If somebody 
20, 30, 40 years ago in your life, depending on how old you are, if some of you are younger, five years, three maybe, I don't know. If somebody 20, 30, 40 years ago, so go back in that time, and would have looked at you and said, 30 or 40 years down the road, you're going to be making, they write a number, you're going to be making this much money in 30 or 40 years. Most of us would have gone, holy smokes. I, if, I, if that's true, when I get to that amount, I will be done. I will be golden. I will need nothing else. I will have arrived. If somebody were to say to me, said 30 years ago, this is why you go, I'll, no worries ever again, if that's true. That happened for you? No. Because here we are making what 30 or 40 years ago we wouldn't have dreamed, and yet here we are still going, ah, worry. Why? Because through all the years, we do what we've always done. We don't change anything. This guy is us, and he says, done. I've got plenty. i got enough to take care of me for years to come. But then God says to him, you fool. You fool, not for being rich. This guy is not a fool for being rich. This guy is a fool for assuming. For assuming that because it came to him, it was for him without any accountability. That's why he's a fool. He assumed that all this income was actually his disposable income. That's a word that we use. Can you think? So here's why we have so much problems in our culture, thought process, because we all, like, we all live with the idea of disposable income. Think about that word, disposable income. Go look up in a dictionary and it says this, disposable income is all the money that you have after taxes are out, the rest of it's all disposable. Which means it's just yours to dispose of. You can take it, you can spend it, you can waste it, you can burn it, you can compost it. You can put it down the garbage disposal if you choose. Why? Because it's just disposable. I mean, it's no wonder that we have this problem in our society breaking this this cycle because all of us think in terms of what's mine is for me and it's my disposable, consumable income. God says, you fool, because tonight your life will be demanded of you. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I mean, I got all this stuff. And I got this plan. See, you got the plan, but what you don't have is you don't have any time left. You got all the plan, you got all the stuff set aside, but you don't have any time left. You know, all your stuff, you've been hoarding it for the time of future consumption. The only problem is you're out of time. Time's up. You see, you thought that you'd have plenty of time, and God says, nope, tonight your life will be demanded of you. Then in the story, Jesus asks this guy a very pointed question. Now, just please know, when he asks this guy the question, he's asking us the question. He's asking you the question, and he's asking me. So he says to this guy, okay, so, you have, you, so tonight your life is going to be demanded of you. And then here's the question, verse 20. He looks at the guy and says, now who's going to get what you prepared for yourself? Now who gets what you have prepared for yourself? Answer? Somebody else. The answer is not you, somebody else. Somebody else gets it not because he was generous, but because he's dead. And you can't take it with you. Interesting. He assumed, he assumed that what was his was his to dispose of and consume. And he forgot that he himself was disposable and consumable. He forgot about the fact that every one of us are consumable. Consumable. 
Every one of us have a moment in time which we do not control where God says, time is up. And then Jesus does this. He pulls back from the story and then he looks at his followers right in the eyes. Now listen carefully. Because when Jesus pulls back from the story and then looks at his followers in the eyes, his followers are us. He looks at you in the eye. He looks at me in the eye. He looks at us right in the eye. And then he says to us these words. Verse 21. And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Now, Yad asked the question, he says, this is. Yad asked the question, what's this? This is how it will be. What's the this? It's pretty straightforward. This is a total loss. The this here he's talking about is it's going to be a total loss for you. This is the way it's going to be for everyone who is, who is not rich towards God, who stores up all this stuff for themselves. This means total loss. You will have nothing to show for everything that has come your way because either you consumed it or you hoarded it for future consumption. You worried about having enough and all along the way you were never content with what you had. Notice he says future tense. This is how it will be. You know why he says that? Because he knew you'd be here today. Future tense because he knew that I would be facing the same struggle of what to do with my money. And so when he said, this is how it will be, he's saying that right to me, Scott, this is how it will be if you are not rich towards God. Now that should get your attention, right? Mine too. Um, I don't want to be this guy. I don't want to end like this. So you got to ask the question, so then what on earth does it mean to be rich towards God? Should I be rich towards God in my time, giving my time to God? Nope, not it. I mean, good thing, but nope. Rich towards God in my prayer life? Nope. Rich towards God in my weekly attendance? Nope. How about my volunteering? Nope. All good things, and, and you should be doing those things, but nope, that's not it. Be sure to get this. Being rich towards God is in direct contrast to this guy's example. So what's the opposite? What did he do? He kept it for himself. What's the opposite to be rich towards God is to give it to others. It's just that simple. There's no other way to interpret it. There's no other uh, tricky way to figure out around, around it. This guy was not rich towards God because he didn't give it away to others. You say, well, how can that be? How does giving away to others make it rich towards God? Because when you give your stuff away to what God loves, guess who God loves? People. He loves his church. And so to be rich towards God is that we take what we have and we don't see it as it's for me to consume, but we see it as on loan for me in which to share as needed. Now immediately you can say, oh, wait a minute. Scott, there's a real, real problem here in the thought process. So if I have what I have and I give it to you, now you have to give it away or you're going to be in sin and you're going to be the fool. So I give mine to you. You got to give it to somebody else. You get it, give it away, get it away. I mean, the issue here is not you can't be rich. That's not the issue. I mean, you get the problem there. If we all give it away, then someone's got to be the fool here at the end. Nope, doesn't work that way. And remember in this story, a couple things. It, this is, it's not wrong for you to be, to be rich. God doesn't say you have to be poor. It doesn't say that at all. Remember in the story, a couple of things. First, it says this guy had an abundance. On top of that, he looked at how to store his surplus. God didn't expect you necessarily to take all that you have and to live in, in absolute poverty. 
because you've given it all away. God would expect you to take care of yourself and your family. But be very careful because here's what we do in this next step. We substitute words. I would say that God would fully expect you to meet your need. And, and what that really means to us is God would fully expect me to meet my wants. And that's the word I substitute. But God would say, no, it's not the case here. I mean, by all means, meet your needs. But generous people who are rich towards God, they don't assume, and here's the key mindset change, they don't assume that it's theirs. They don't assume that everything that comes to them with their name on it is theirs to consume. Some of you say, hey, but I'm the one doing the work. I got news for you. You're not the one who's allowing you to breathe. God says, stop breathing. You're done. So be real careful here when you start claiming what's yours. But see, generous people are rich towards God. They don't assume it's theirs to consume because they realize it's not theirs to begin with. And Jesus in this moment, so give me a couple more minutes, we'll wrap up. Jesus in this moment actually defies this idea of ownership. He destroys the idea that we're the owners. And he does so when he says to this guy, tonight, your life will be demanded of you. You see, friends, your life is not yours. You do not control when you die. You can control what you do today. You can control what you're going to do. But the bottom line is you don't control when it's time, when your time is up. Which means that if you don't control the ending, then you're not in control at all. And Jesus defies the idea of ownership because we think we own our lives. And Jesus says, sorry, doesn't work that way. I mean, what you have will be taken away in a heartbeat. If it can all be taken away, including your life, then you need to know you never owned it in the first place. You just never did. This is yours to manage, he says, for a period of time, but you don't own it. It might own you, but you don't own it. Had a very close friend that lost everything in a bad business deal. When I say everything, they had, he had the house, he had the cars, he had the lifestyle, lost everything in a bad business deal. Everything to the place where, you know, house is gone and having to rent or lease an apartment. Uh, cars are gone, buying used cars for a couple hundred bucks that would just, that just basically run. Uh, working two or three, two or three um, you know, uh, basic wage type jobs to get by. Lost everything. Hooked up some years later and he seemed happy. Genuinely happy. And most of us would be happy. Most of us would just be like, oh. And you know, it's like, what's the deal? You seem genuinely happy. Now he would say, right, right, I don't want to go through that again. I miss, I miss some of the stuff without question and how I live, whatever. But he would also say this, but you know what? I owe no one anything, nothing. I don't have any debt. I'm not beholden to anybody. And what I go work, I get and use, and I don't owe anyone anything. And there was a freedom that was incredible. Now, there's only two ways I know to get that freedom. One, lose everything. Yeah, I wouldn't suggest it. But the reason I wouldn't suggest it, you know why, right? Because you lose everything, you're going to get it all or most of it back, and you're still not going to change your patterns. Chances are good. The other way is with God's help, you ask him to get you a place where you can say, okay, God, all this is temporary. It's all stuff it's not even my stuff. And so I'm not the owner. Now, here's my challenge for you this week, and then a closing story. Here's my challenge. Would you this week try something? Would you commit yourself for one week, 
for this week, would you, I mean, write it down on a piece of paper, stick it on the dashboard, stick it on your desk, stick it on your forehead, I don't care where, stick it someplace, and would you commit for one week to try to think differently about your stuff? See, generous people think like managers, not consumers. And so for one week, would you be willing to think differently? Every time you have the opportunity to give something or to, or to share something, and you have this thought that goes, oh, but if I give it away, I won't have it. Or what if they don't give it back? Or they break it? Stop right there and go, wait, that's that crazy way of thinking that if I, if I don't give it, if I keep it, somehow I won't worry about it. In a moment this week, when you have a moment that comes up in your mind where you could protect something or keep something or hoard something, would you stop and say, hey, wait a minute, uh, that's a crazy way of thinking because it's really not mine. Or better yet, when you look at that big 80-inch TV and it's like, ah, I got to have that. Maybe this week you'd stop and they go, you know what, it's not mine. I should probably check with the guy who owns it. See if he wants me to spend it that way. Would you try to stop and say, man, this crazy way of thinking is creeping back in again, that just because it's come to me, I think it's mine to consume. But maybe instead this week, I'm going to say, God, this is yours. How would you like me to spend it? What would you like me to do with it? Let me give you a closing story. Diane and I have now come to the place in both of our lives where both of our parents are gone. My dad died some 30 years ago, and her dad died four or five five years ago. Um, And then my mom died like a year and a half, two years ago, and her mom mom died this past year. And so we've now, uh, both parents are gone, so we've now both gone through the process of going through stuff, you know, the stuff in the estates, those kind of things. Now, admittedly, when my... My mom finally died. Um, it wasn't nearly as a, an issue. Because when I was in high school, my parents left the house I grew up in and moved to a house closer to where they both worked. So there was a great purging that happened then of stuff. And then when, you know, we were, we were married, my parents moved from that house and they bought a place in Florida, a retirement house. So by the time my parents both died, they were pretty lean and mean on stuff. And there wasn't very much, not much nostalgic stuff that that we wanted. I, I, I think it was probably emotional. In fact, I think back about it now, it wasn't emotional at all for me. Uh, as I'm thinking back to both those transitions, the emotional time for me was actually my grandmother went into a nursing home with Alzheimer's because that, that's where we, I grew up. We spent a lot of time growing up. And I remember sitting at a desk that my grandfather had in his, he had a study full of books. My grandfather was a craftsman, a barber and a plumber and a, I mean, he built houses and things, but he was a believer. And every morning, four or five in the morning, he started his day sitting at this desk, reading his Bible and studying. And so the day my grandma was going to the home, I saw that desk and I said, I want that. I need to know this desk was not pretty because in the 20 years since my grandpa had died, my grandma used it to hold all her plants in the basement. So it had been watered on, watered over, warped, broke. I mean, literally it flooded twice. The legs fell apart. All the pieces were there. So I wrapped it all up in bags, took it, took it home, put it up in the rafters of our garage for, I don't know, honey, 15 years, 20, a long time. Until one day uh, I thought, I'm going to take it and see if I can get it fixed. In fact, my mom was going to come for a visit. I wanted to see if I could get it fixed. Took it into a place. They redid it. It's gorgeous. Now it sits in my home office. And that's, that, that's got meaning to me. But the only thing I have for my parents, truthfully, my parents actually, I have my dad's dog tags from World War II. And that's the, that's the sentimental piece for me. Pretty much everything else, we were lean and mean. 
when Diane's mom just recently died, we went out there in December to have to go deal with a house of 50 plus years. This is the house that they built, but not just that they built it, the, her grandfather actually built the house along with her uncles, the kitchen cabinets made by her uncles, the stonework made by her, grand, her grandfather. So, and there's no one in the family to buy the house. So the house which has been the center of family life is going to be sold and all of the stuff that's there. So there we go. So there we are. And when we talk about stuff, we're talking about all sorts of stuff. I mean, we're talking 60, 70, 80, 90, 80 years worth of stuff. Like a 40 or 50-year-old Coleman camping cooler with a hinge broken. Two or three of them. Uh, and back then, they weren't plastic, you know. They were metal, you know. They had a Coleman cooler up there. Nothing that you'd want, but it was there. A freezer that's 40, 50 years old itself, a chest freezer, packed full. If you open the lid, you might as well be careful because, and this is big enough to lay bodies in. This is a big freezer. Um, and if you, if you took the lid off, you better be careful because you got the whole lid in your hand. The hinge is long ago rusted. And in fact, it wouldn't stay on, so the lid would sit on top with weights on it to keep it down. But that freezer still froze. It was rock solid. There's a piano, piano that hadn't been tuned. I don't even know if it was ever tuned. It was dusted well, looked nice, but not in tune. Now catch this. Year before my if mom died, Diane's mom died, she was still very vibrant, very active. And the family would come home for a vacation, come home to see her. And man, life in that place. And mom would say, hey, let's go to the lake. Yeah, let's do it. Go grab that cooler. And we'd go up and grab that cooler and go to the freezer and get, and we'd pack that free cooler with stuff from the freezer. And somebody would be playing the piano. Usually it would be Diane playing the piano. Uh, you don't know this. When we first came to the church some 30 plus years ago, we had an organ. Diane played the organ for us for a couple, for a couple of years. We had no organ. So she'd be in there playing the piano. Everything in the place seemed to be alive. And then her life was demanded of her. Jesus called her home and what's interesting is that when she went home to be with Jesus and please know mom was rich towards God see the reason she had a 40 or 50 year old cooler was because she didn't need the most updated cooler because the old worked just fine because you see she was rich towards God which means she was able to be generous with people. And she didn't live in a consumer mentality that just because it's mine, it's mine to consume. And, but here's the key piece. Mom's gone, and that cooler was lifeless. Lifeless. That freezer, thawed, emptied, dumpster. Piano, I don't know who got it, but gone. Everything lost its life. Why? Because it's just stuff. We have some mementos without question, the things that were precious that we wanted, Diane wanted. But the truth of it is, for most of it, it was either sold, given away, and huge dumpsters just full of stuff. Why? Because we're not owners. And we shouldn't live like consumers. We got home from all of that. And Diane looked at all of our stuff and said, you know what? We got to go through all of our stuff so our kids don't have to go through what we just went through. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> no, way. 
no way in the world those kids are going through the, what we just don't. I'm going to add stuff so they have to work harder at it just to get it. Here's the end, friends. Listen very closely. You can keep living in the same exact trap. Or maybe you can try a generous lifestyle. Come back next week. We'll wrap it up together. Stan, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your help to help us change the way that we think. Because it's a cycle that we can't get out of. It's ours to consume. But what would happen if we began changing our thought process to being generous? And by generous saying, we're not the owner. It's not mine to hold on tightly to. Because we find a pattern that when we have that attitude, man, do you bless, do you bless your generous people? So may that generosity be seen in us. This week, challenge our thinking. Might we look this week at everything we have and may we look at it not from the eyes of the owner, but may we look at it from the manager who seeks the owner's approval with what we do with it. Dismiss us in your grace. All for Jesus. Amen. God bless you.